Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Ellis. When wildfire breaks out and the flames are too remote to access on land, smoke jumpers get the call. This highly trained elite group of firefighters parachute into some of the most challenging wildfires in the country. They can be airborne in minutes and can reach any fire line in the West within a few hours. Activated based on the recommendation of the Advisory Committee on Negro Troop Policies, chaired by the Assistant Secretary of War John J. McCloy, Chief of Staff George C. Marshall approved the committee's recommendation for a black parachute battalion and decided to start with a company. And on February 25th, 1943, the 555th Parachute Infantry Company was constituted. On December 19, 1943, headquarters of the Army Ground Forces authorized the activation of the company as an all-black unit with black officers as well as black enlisted men. All unit members would be volunteers with an enlisted cadre to be selected from personnel of the 92nd Infantry Division stationed out of Fort Huachuca, Arizona. The company was officially activated on December 30, 1943 at Fort Bennings, Georgia. After several months of training, the unit moved to Camp McCall, North Carolina, where it was reorganized and redesignated on November 25, 1944 as Company A of the newly activated 555th Parachute Infantry Battalion. Due to its numerical designation, as well as the fact that 17 of its original 20 members were selected from the 92nd Infantry Buffalo Division, the 555th PIB would adopt the nickname the Triple Nickels, hence the origin of the term Buffalo Nickels. And though combat ready and alerted for European duty in late 1944, the changing tides of war resulted in a different assignment, jumping over the blazing forest of the American Northwest searching for Japanese balloon bombs, a job requiring exact skills and special courage. In this unusual role, the 555th also confronted a new dimension in warfare involving the use of biological agents that could destroy woodlands and crops, but not humans. These men soon became known as smoke jumpers. At this stage in the war, the Japanese were floating incendiary devices attached to balloons across the Pacific Ocean, taking advantage of the jet stream's easterly flow in an attempt to start forest fires in the northwestern United States. The Forestry Service asked the military for help and the Triple Nickels were ready, willing, and able. The battalion answered some 36 fire calls with more than 1,200 individual jumps during the summer of 1945. Operating from Pendleton and Chico, California, the operations covered all the northwestern states including Montana. During fire operations, the battalion suffered numerous injuries but only one fatality. Malvin L. Brown, a medic assigned to the battalion's headquarter company, died on August 6, 1945 after falling during a letdown from a tree near Roseburg, Oregon. His death is the first recorded smoke jumper fatality during a fire jump. When the battalion was inactivated on December 15, 1947, its men were all transferred into the 3rd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Airborne Division, which had been reduced to cadre strength in preparation for their arrival. Soon afterwards, individual black paratroopers were transferred to units throughout the 82nd Airborne Division, making it the first integrated division in the United States Army. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. 
And I know it's been a while since we put out the last episode with Mr. Eric Hauser. I hope you guys enjoyed that little interview and the video that went along with it. If you haven't seen that, head over to YouTube, check out the Digital 410 Network, and check out the two new videos we posted. One is when Eric Hauser came down here and we went around town and I showed him all the World War II and military monuments around Southwest Florida. And most recently, the video I shot up at the Mount Dora Renickers Military Vehicle Preservation Association event. A uh, little disclaimer in the video, I refer to them as the Military Vehicle Preservation Society instead of the association. So for you guys in the association, I do apologize for that. And this episode um, is kind of a two-part episode. The last half is part one of the interviews I did during that event from the cab of the old Tacoma the At Computers Mobile Studio, as we like to call it. And as you know, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. Whether you need a computer repair, network, footprint expansion, server work, what have you, give them a call at 239-283-1120. But I cannot express the importance of backing up your data. Just this week, we had a customer who... One of their employees inadvertently got their server and some of their data encrypted through ransomware. But luckily, they're backing up all their data with the online backup solution that At Computers provides. And, um, you know, it went from being a catastrophe to a huge inconvenience. But luckily, all their data is backed up. And we are currently getting their server back up and running and reloading all that data. And so to offer you that same peace of mind, give At Computers a call at 239-283-1120. doesn't matter where you live in the country or perhaps around the world. They will set you up with online backup at seven cents a gig per month. Give them a call two three nine two eight three eleven twenty, or hit them up on Facebook, Twitter, or email them at info at act capecoralcom Or you can email us at info at wtspworldwar2.com, and we'll pass the information along to them. Backup your data now is more important than any other time. It is not worth losing all your important documents. Seven cents a gig per month. Act computers. And so, as I was saying, this is kind of a two-part episode. And the beginning, um, the beginning I felt was important to include into this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast because of something I have going on this Saturday with my daughter. And to explain this um, in the format in which we do on this show where it's just me sitting alone in a room, it really wouldn't get the humor across. And since I already explained this story about three weeks ago on my other podcast, The Waterman and D-Train Show, um, I felt I would just play that segment on here. So you can guys can get the whole background of what's going on this weekend. And on next week's episode, I will tell you what happened this weekend and if the story continues. So humor me for a little bit, sit back, and here we go for the Waterman and D-Train show to explain to you what I have going on this weekend. And after this segment, we will sit down with Mr. Brown, who's a documentarian who's working on a documentary that I ran into at the um, Mount Dora event. So um, as per always... When we do the interview in the cab of the truck, the sound's not the greatest, but it's better than it has ever been. Um, it's a pretty good sounding remote um, episode, but uh, here you go. Thank you guys for your continued support, and let's get started. First, I was informed that uh, Nugget hates my podcast. Which one? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> because in order for well, us to be part of the course of the right? Oh, thank you, Nugget, if you're listening to this. Well, she hates them because while we're doing this, she can't be acting a fool and making a ruckus in the house. That's one day. Well, yeah, okay. And I was explaining to her, well, if I didn't have the podcast, you wouldn't have a studio to be singing in for four hours on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, there you go. Because she was in here Saturday recording herself oh. singing. She does karaoke in here. Very cool. How many 
sixth grade girls have their own recording studio. studio yeah, man, true. But anyhow, she started sixth grade this year. Oh man! And she volunteered to do a history fair project. Oh, cool! And she came home at the beginning of the year and said, "I'm doing a history fair project." All proud. Okay. And I'm doing it on World War Two. Oh boy! Well, that's a mighty broad subject there, Nugget. Yeah. What's the theme <laughs> yeah. of the your subject. history fair? Breaking boundaries. Breaking boundaries. Breaking boundaries. World okay. War Two. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you're in luck. Um, about a year and a half prior to Nuggets joining our family, mm-hmm. um, Carrie got a bunch of books from the Scholastic programs based on the amount of box tops that they turn in. Which, yeah. by the way, they don't do box tops anymore. Heaven forbid we print box tops on boxes. Now we want you to go to our website. Mm-hmm. But anyhow. <clears throat> So Carrie got this book about two years ago. It's on the um, it's for fourth and fifth graders. It's classic. It's um, approved reading, and it's on the five hundred and fifty fifth Parachute Infantry Regiment, hmm. the Triple Nickels. And they are the first all black, oh wow, Army Regiment, including NCOs. Part of them, they had black Army regiments, but mm-hmm. they had white officers. And prior to them, a majority of them were either cooks, truck drivers, or you know they right. worked in quartermasters and the less glamorous gigs. Mm-hmm. And so this was the first all-black infantry regiment, not to mention paratroopers. That's pretty intense, man. And they call themselves the Triple Nickels because it was the 555th, mm-hmm. three fives. Yep, Nichols, five, five. And it's also an homage to the Buffalo soldiers. Oh, okay. Buffalo Nickel. Yeah, Buffalo Nickel. And so these guys went through the whole parachute infantry school, and they did all the drum chaining. But heaven forbid we send the first all-black parachute infantry to fight the Nazis— Let's send them to the West Coast instead to fight forest fires from the Japanese barrage balloons. Oh, man. So these poor guys went through the training, but they never actually saw any combat. Mm-hmm. But they, what they did do, and where they did create history other than being the first all-black unit, is most of the policies that the smoke jumpers use nowadays when they jump into forest fires was created by these guys. Right, right. Before then, no one jumped out of airplanes, and they sure shit didn't do it to fight fires. Mm-mm. And so, that, so you got two histories there. So I gave her this book. There you go. It meets your desire to do World War II, and it meets their requirement to do uh, Breaking Boundaries. Come to find out that this is a countrywide history fair. Oh, man. And she's had eight months to do it. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's crunch time, bro. And so she brought home the paperwork one day. Oh, and dude. I didn't help her with the project. I just helped her defining what primary research material is a secondary research and yeah. third and third cursory research material and helped her and then she did the rest of the project at school made these boxes put pictures descriptions yeah, yeah. black and white eight by tens with x's and errors and a paragraph on the back of each one saying exactly what it was mm-hmm. that's for you else's restaurant fans out there and i forgot about it because it's a volunteer thing and yeah. you know i talked to her teacher and her teacher knew that she you know in fifth grade she was in some classes for kids with, uh, you know, not exactly achieving scholastically. And, and the teacher said, you know, to be honest with you, this is kind of for the advanced kids, man. But if she turns in stuff, I'll, you know, I'll grade it and grade good it. to go. Uh-oh. And so last Thursday rolls around. She says, hey, my art fair is tomorrow. What? <laughs> I haven't heard anything in about five months. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, great. Did you read the book? Sure did. Mm-mm. Okay, so what are some of the important things? Well, you know, they're the first, um, well, you know, they were the first black unit to go fight in World War Nugget. They never 
they never fought. fought in the <laughs> they were yeah. turning fire fighters. Turns out she over eight months, despite oh my, my current insisting and current insisting that she read this book. Yeah, but they do all the project at work at school, so it's not like she can bring it home and I can help her with it. Right, right. But when she first signed up for this thing, I said, "Okay, if you do this thing, I will allow you. I'll take some of my gear to school." And it's on airborne. Now I have an 82nd airborne uniform. I'm not, I'm not going to cut the patch off and put on a, you know, a 555th because one, I can't wear mm-hmm. the uniform. And two, they yeah. don't make reproductive patches. Would be not cool. And so um, I followed suit. I was like, you got to read the book. I can't find the book. Oh, what do you mean no. you can't find the book? Go online. You better read up. You, yeah. You're going to embarrass yourself tomorrow. Yep. You're going to embarrass yourself. Now, being the asshole father that I am, <laughs> I said, what a better way to learn a lesson about procrastination than getting publicly embarrassed. Oh, it'll happen. At a goddamn competition. Oh, they'll look at you. Okay, now find out what time I need to be there to bring my gear. Yeah. If you're competing. I get a text. 10 a.m. Friday <laughs> morning. You need to be here by 1130. All right. Great. That's an hour and a half from now, and I'm at work. Oh my god! So I come home. I grab my mannequin. Clearly, I can't take rifles, knives, bayonets, and hand no. grenades. So I just and once again, they never went to combat. They're firefighters. So I just grabbed my jacket, blouse, the airborne helmet, the web gear, and a canteen and the haversack, and I took it down there and I set it up. And I believe I posted a picture. If not, I'll post one later. Yeah. And as first, I had seen these boxes that she created, and they looked great. There's pictures she printed out, and here's one of the guys in airborne school. Here's one of them. Uh, Digging a fire line in the forest in which she put, here they are, digging a grave for the comrade. What? <laughs> too. I'm like, no. what she said, dude? Like, She's digging fight. a grave? They didn't fight. They're, cut, they're, they're digging a grave digging for their fallen brothers. They're digging a fire line to prevent the spread of fire. Okay. Okay. Oh, God. Here's one from Vietnam. What? Oh, what, what, what? Oh. Vietnam. Nugget, come here. Yeah, Perhaps. man. Yeah, yeah. When the judges come over, skip that picture. That's from Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I thought that. No, it's okay. And so we're there. Yeah. And first and foremost, I naive little Don, I was assuming that there was going to be some state certified history fair judges. Judge, yeah, some sort of competition thing happening. It's the the brothers, the cousins, the sisters of the teachers. So, okay. uh, that makes it a little bit easier. All right. Okay. But now they have three categories. They got the uh, the displays like Nugget made. You can either do two boxes stacked, which is a nice three D thing, and yeah. then some people made like a, th- a trifold giant card. Yeah, yeah, thing. that old school stuff. You go in there, and there's one on the um, <clears throat> the Jacksonville Fire of 1901. It's got some cool stuff. Mm. Not sure how it's breaking boundaries, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you got one on the um, LGBT community. Okay, that's breaking boundaries. People mm-hmm. get married now. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one on 911. Mm-hmm. Breaking boundaries. How's that? I guess the Muslims broke some boundaries, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's kind of odd. <laughs> okay, whatever. And, yeah, and so the other one is you could have done a play or a skit. Okay. Or put a PowerPoint presentation and make a quote unquote documentary. All right. Now you would think with video cameras, yeah, voiceover equipment, she would have made a video, but she chose to make the boxes, which is fine. Yeah. And I'm standing there and okay, um, as the judges go around to uh <sighs> judge everybody's stuff, we're gonna start the first documentary. And the very first documentary them are Higgins boats. I recognize those. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. As this next group of kids are playing a very well done PowerPoint, you can tell they recorded their their audio on their phones. A lot of background noise, which you know they're they're sixth graders. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna. But as the landing craft are rushing towards Normandy Beach, and the background plays John Denver's "Country Road, Take Me Home," what the? 
okay, they're, they're they're sixth graders. They don't know that John Denver put that song out in '69, yeah, not 1942, say. but that's fine. And it was cute and all that. And they're going around, <clears throat> and Nugget has her interview, and I, I'm standing <laughs> back. And, oh, 555th Paratroof Infantry Division. Where did they get their name from? Uh oh, didn't have the answer. For oh, that. okay, well. I'm going to get my wish. She's going to get embarrassed. Yeah, she's getting it. She's going down in a big flaming. Going down. And so she does her thing, and she's showing a picture. Now, I will say she did get enough that she knew the principal characters and say their names and point to them, this and that. She was happy to show that on my mannequin, the jacket was the same ones in the pictures of them in their airborne training school. All right. And then another PowerPoint presentation comes up on Obama. <laughs> and I'm listening to this kid's voiceover work, and there's very, very little background noise. Very little white noise. Yeah. Don't go there. White noise is a technical term for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not even talking to you people. people. And I watched it. I was like, damn, this kid's doing a good job. Yeah, he's got some pro stuff happening here. And so it was done. I walked up to him. I probably scared to show him. I reached in. I said, good job on the voiceover work. Yeah, damn right, dude. <laughs> the kid's probably like, huh? Oh, thanks. And, yeah. then, and then another kid did one on... Um, the Spanish influenza. <laughs> okay. Now Jesus. this kid's parents, his parents must have been one. They must do a podcast because his voiceover work was spot fucking on. Really good. The recording huh? quality was right there. He wasn't they doing probably. it on his on his iPhone in the toilet. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was spot on. His dialogue was great. The fonts were perfect. The transitions clearly somebody clearly helped him produce this. They know computers this and shit. Yeah. And so they're running late. Um, this other group gets up and they're starting to do their, their slideshow on the uh, Jacksonville fire of 1901, which they chose four young ladies chose some romantic, smooth R and B as the background music to All play right. while you're talking about the burning down of Jacksonville and Jesus. people burning to death. And then it starts double tracking songs and it crashes. And so now at this point, the, the thing's going to go long, which is fine. And, I had to get going. I was told this thing was going to run from 12 to 2 o'clock. So I, right. I, you got work to I do. I busy do. I grab my gear, give Nugget a kiss. Mm-hmm. See got you later. She had a lockout that night. It's where they lock them into school and they run around and have fun. So I won't see you until 8 o'clock. Go back to work. Get a text message. Uh oh. Hey, Dad. I got third place. What? What? So now at the end of the month, Nugget's going to regionals. Oh, where the hell is that at? Somewhere here in Lee County. Oh, okay. But if she wins regional, she's going to state. Oh, Jesus. And then possibly Washington, D.C., depending on how far oh, this train Oh, my God. Goes. Dude, you, better, you better, start, better start studying up a little bit. And more. so I told her, I said, hey. Work on that presentation. I, one, you got two things going against you. Two, people are going to see you did a thing on World War II and just assume I did the whole fucking project for you. True. Which, as I just explained in great detail, wasn't the case. Not only did I not do a project for her, but she barely did it for herself. Yeah, barely even told me about but, it. But her smile... She's got that million dollar smile. Yeah, I got her con- through it, man. And, you know, her presentation was on mark and she got through it. But I told her, I said, you're not going, you know, you're going up against the kids who got Take- one through fourth at their school. Mm-hmm. And I said, see if you can bring those boxes home so we can peel off the Vietnam logo. Yeah, get, yeah. <laughs> replace that one and then replace the paragraph about how they're making graves for their fallen comrades oh. when they're digging a fire line. And you better <laughs> find that damn book, and you better read it yeah. like six times. Yeah, you got to get that going. Because if man. you're going to regionals, you you don't want to be embarrassed. And Oof. so she pulled. Not even, I you know, I was leaving, and, and the judge, said, your daughter did a good job. And I'm thinking, really? okay, 
They're That's probably going to cool. get her fourth place. Makes you feel good. She got third place. I can't believe it, man. Third place, bro. She got like a ribbon. The train's going to be breaking out the. She got uh, that medal that's hanging right there. Oh, that's the medal right yeah, there. The, oh, the, the red, red one. blue. Oh man, I have to yeah. take I have to take a little close look at that. Like the girl who got first place, like when we got there, Nuggets. Like, she's like, see that girl up front? The one looks like a stewardess. She had like on a blue sport <laughs> coat and like. Uh, she did a well done, like yeah, perfect Very high resolution photo about uh, gay marriage and oh, the paragraphs were on point and all that. And she got first place, but all in all, the thing was great. But I'm thinking, I told Carrie, I said, "Fuck, yeah, we were expecting this to be a learning experience for her about not procrastinating and, and she's being, getting rewarded for it <laughs> and, and the uh, the horrors <laughs> of public humiliation. Yeah, only to find out now you got third place. Yeah, getting rewarded. Well, so for much that. for that learning opportunity. Yeah. Now, she, now Nugget's gonna not want to go anywhere with D Train because he's going to be quizzing her in the car every time they drive. Somewhere. Yeah, bro, he's gonna be on her, man. She's gonna be like, Dad, don't worry so what's about it. About? Well, now she's representing me. Yeah, don't worry the about it. Host of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, right. You know, now, now you've got some work to do <laughs> to get her up to snuff. Dad, I know yeah. what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's kind of hard to get on her about the fact that she has some not less than pleasing grades simply because she doesn't. Do her homework. Yeah, just apply herself well, a little bit. I don't have bit. to do my homework. I can uh, fumble my way eight months through a project and get third place. ACDC, bro. And no, it wasn't she got third <laughs> out of five. There was 15 people in her category in the that's display. Amazing. That's not counting the uh, PowerPoint so or, the, the or, the, or the, the skit people. She got third place out of so like 18 people in her category. Some of these other uh, <laughs> uh, projects had to have been some real fucking shit shows. <laughs> Well, I can't say that. They're fucking sixth graders. But. I know, man, but I'm sorry, dude. That's be some real shit show, dude. Jesus. Uh, yeah. Look, Bobby traced his hand and turned it into a turkey. Yeah. Yeah, check that out. Man. Yeah. What was the theme again? Uh, the theme? Breaking Barriers. Oh, yeah, that's right. Breaking Barriers. Breaking yeah. Barriers. Something about 9-11. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that went a long way that oh. her project was on point. Yeah. It was history and it was did. Breaking Barriers. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. But, she, at least she had the breaking barrier moment. You yeah. Know, something in time. Yeah, so I got that working against me now. <laughs> oh, boy, dude. You, bro, you're going to end up going to Washington, D.C., man. And so, as you can imagine, the procrastination didn't stop. I had to go out and buy another book. I don't know where the original one is, so now the book I got for free two years ago, I just paid $20 for another copy to prepare her for the next round of this big event. Here it is Thursday, tonight. We printed up new photos, we got rid of the Vietnam photo, we got rid of the paragraph about digging the graves, she's making cue cards, uh, tomorrow night her friends stay in the night, she's going to cram for this big event, We're, i got to take her display down tomorrow, Friday, along with my mannequin and some stuff, set up the display and pray that none of my stuff gets stolen overnight, Friday, and then Saturday morning, we will be there bright and early. For round two of the Nationwide History program to see if Nugget's project is good enough to go to state. And then after that, she's going to go to Washington, D.C. So make sure you tune in next week to find out whether um, Nugget's Million Dollar Smile and her project gets her past round two. Wish us luck. And uh, let's see how that goes. And so be sure to check in next week to find out what happened and also to enjoy our interview, the second interview we did this weekend at Mount Dora with Jerry Oxley. But first, here he is, Mr. Brown, talking to you 
about his upcoming World War II documentary, which is a very cool story, one I, I hadn't heard before, and I hope you enjoy it. Excuse the noise, excuse the sound quality, because we are once again recording live from the Digital 410 at Computer's mobile studio known as the Toyota Tacoma. We are out here in Mount Dora, Florida at the Renegers Flea Market for the Military Vehicle Preservation Society show. We've got World War II armor out here. There's Jeeps, there's trucks, there's half-tracks. There's everything you could possibly need if you're a reenactor or a military vehicle collector. Any items you need could be purchased here. I actually just moved my car because Jerry explained to me when he was in his truck earlier and uh, we were clo parked super close to the tanks and every hour they're shooting off blank rounds and they got a huge artillery piece out here and Jerry was mentioning when he was in his truck and they fired off a round that his windshield seemed to flex a little bit and I don't know how you would uh, file an insurance claim on that sort of thing so I just moved my truck further down to a safer distance so I was just walking around doing what I do and um, I was asked that if I would be interested in signing a likeness disclaimer because a gentleman here is looking to do some b-roll for his documentary he's currently working on and you know me I said hey pro, pro quo are you interested in uh, coming on my podcast to talk about your documentary and joining us from the 2016 Toyota Tacoma in <laughs> Mount Dora Florida Mr. John Brown John how are you doing today wonderful how are you thanks for having me I'm doing well Good. I'm going to adjust your mic a little bit. All right. So you gave me a real quick synopsis, but I didn't want you to give me the whole thing because I wanted you to save it and be fresh for this podcast. Right. So what's the working title for your documentary, and what's the uh, scuttlebutt on that? All right. The name of the film is Agen, One Man's War, and it's about a World War II vet, George Agen. He <clears throat> lives in, well, he passed away last April, uh, but before he passed for the year and a half prior we met quite a bit and did oral history and he told me about everything he did when he was in the war he was a liberator of Dachau on 29 April he um, in 2004 he was asked by a friend of his who was a professor at Valdosta State University Dr. Louis Schmier if he would come into his class on Holocaust studies and tell them about what he saw sure. when he liberated. So, of course, George did it, and it was the first time that he had shared the story. And it started from there. Him and his wife, Joyce, um, went around to schools at VSU and local schools in the area and shared the story about in the high 90s. Wow. of times just letting people know about what he saw and his story is actually quite amazing not just the liberation of Dachau but the other things that he did um, he was a combat engineer so you know soldier plus sure and then um, he was the equipment NCO so he had the deuce and a half with all of the explosives and the spare tools and um, they trained at Camp Chaffee in Arkansas, went left out of New York, and uh, went through the Straits of Gibraltar, landed at um, Marseille, and went up and were stationed out of Sospel as they built 
roads, widened roads and everything for all of the equipment that was coming in on the southern southern France front. And um, while he was in Suspel, they were protected by the 442nd. So the Nisei troops were just coming off of their hard-fought battles in Italy, yeah. and they were sent down there, and it's what they called the Champagne Campaign, because mm-hmm. they were down there, and they were, but that was the the first time that Georgia's unit had seen combat, and they were building their roads and building new bridges, and they were being protected by the uh, Japanese Americans, and um, so that's an interesting part of the story. He shares some, you know, things how they used to go out on patrol with them and they built the machine gun nests all around to protect them and they'd go out and bring them coffee and talk to them about what they did in Italy and they knew who they were because at that time was after they had just been you know nominated and starting to receive all the awards that they had gotten from Italy. The Battle of the Bulge kicked off and George's unit was packed up and they drove the 400 miles but by the time they got there, everything was done. And let's keep in mind for those listening, 400 miles, not 400 miles in 2020 in a nice, at 80 mile an hour. <laughs> You're talking 400 miles in the back of a deuce and a half, Jeep yep. on foot, traveling top speed, 35 miles an hour max, maybe. And so coming off the lines, you're heading out there, it's a rush because, you know, Germany's pushing through the Ardennes Forest. It's everybody on deck, and you're just, that ride itself, I mean, as someone who's ridden in a deuce and a half, shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of guys, you got your gear, you got everything, you're already tired from everything else. And to take that long trip, that long travel, and then disembark from your, your trucks or however you got there, and now it's time to fight. Mm-hmm. It's like, where do you find that energy? Exactly. Yep. That's, it's a lot, you know, when people watch the movies and the TV shows, that's one of the things they really don't get into because it's not the glamorous side of combat, not that combat should be glamorous, but I always find it's important to express the impact that the environment, that stress, just the everyday life, not, you know, let's not even talk about getting shot at and fearing for your life, but just living in that environment for long periods of time and then being put into a situation where you have to be mobile, you have to get up, move and save your life. It's just, it's so hard to fathom going through that. Yeah. Day after day, week after week, years. That is very true. Yep. And that's one of the things that George expressed during when we talked and spent time together is just that it was hell. He said it was hell because you were, he said you were always at a constant state of readiness. Mm -hmm. You were always paying attention. And he said even to... He was 93 years old, so he's like, even to this day, I still pay way more attention to a whole lot of stuff than yeah, I shouldn't pay attention to. And, yeah, so they by the time they got up there, the bulge had been, it was over. So they just redeployed the unit there and were waiting for orders. But um, they got assigned to T-Force, okay. the target force people, which was... The Allied sending in scientists to get German secrets. Sure. So he they used engineers 
because, you know, trained in explosives, trained in mine clearing, trained in removing booby traps and stuff like that. Because as the Germans left, they booby trapped everything. everything. So they send the engine, the scientists and the engineers, you know, math engineers would send the blow up engineers yeah. in to get everything cleared up. Um, <clears throat> they crossed at Worms and then immediately beelined down to Mannheim where they took the Mercedes factory that was there and at that time Mercedes was building the uh, Opel yep the their version of the deuce and a half their utility truck and then um, they also were building submarine engines so they got all of that and they were just guarding the scientists as they were doing their science stuff yeah because the German u-boats I mean they were causing not not only damage to our ships but to our our uh, logistics you know material supplies yeah. you know they were so to be able to prevent them from at least temporarily from producing more engines because you know the good thing about Germans they there we go every hour on the hour is <laughs> the um, World War II armors firing off their tanks and their long guns now John you see I'm tucked over here out of the way yes I was parked over there and a colleague of mine moved his truck because he said when he was in his truck, it looked like his windshield flexed. And so yep. I moved my truck over here because um, I don't want to file an insurance claim trying to explain how my windshield got cracked by tanks. They actually, the cop that was over there told me, he's like, you might want to move your car because it, mm -hmm. it the shockwave will, will get you. They haven't fired the long gun off yet. That so one, that that's one the puts, one that, that yeah. one puts off a bang. But yeah, every hour on the hour, they started at 8 o'clock this morning. Um... Nice. My rearview mirror is bouncing like I back at, like it was 1995 when I had 15-inch subwoofers in the back of my uh, Ford Escort. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm just waiting before we get back into your thing here. Yep. We camped out here last night. It got down like 37. Oh. You see that little tiny pup tent? Yeah. <laughs> That's me. Um, I ended up staying in the big, uh, the oh. bigger tent, <laughs> which is an Arctic tent. It's actually partitioned inside, and I have four wool blankets and the shell of a. Um, sleeping bag which I just acquired and it, I slept on the ground and it didn't get too cold because I was in that tent but being 41 my body's only good for about six hours on the hard ground so exactly. I woke up at 430 this morning um, I knew I had a slow leak in my tire so I went down and my tire got down to 10 pounds of pressure because of how cold it got so I put air in my tire came back and I fell asleep in the cab of my truck till about six but um, this is my second time this event. I think the live fire is over, so we can get back to the details. Okay. Of uh, before we get back into that, because obviously the key to this is we want people interested in seeing your documentary, so we don't want to give the whole story away. So yeah, let's back off that a little bit and talk a little bit about you. How did I see you have your Jay Brown production shirt on? Yes. Have you done other documentaries in the past, or was this the one that led you down that road? This is what led me down the road. Um, I retired from the Air Force in 2014. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Of course, now the life fires over. Here comes the Huey. Here comes the Huey. <clears throat> but anyhow, they um. When I was in, I hurt my back, had back surgery, um, got out, uh, was working for the post office, of course, you know, because you get 10 points for being a veteran, so instant job. Go. So I uh, was working at the uh, post office while I was uh, finishing my master's degree. But um, anyway, hurt my back again, Ooh. which was a pain, and um, went to the VA and talked to them about it, and they sent me back through vocational rehabilitation. Okay. 
So, um, there there's the long tom. Wow. That's the window cracker. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Holy smokes, the whole thing jerked at me. Yep. They, um, so went back to school, and um, I had done podcasting in the early 2000s. And back when the word, it's, I worked in terrestrial radio for five and a half years. And before I got into radio and podcasts, I'm a computer guy. I've been running an IT firm since 2004. And I'm anti-Apple. So the phrase podcast used to drive me up the wall because it's, <laughs> for those young cats, the reason I call them podcasting is back before the iPhone, everybody had iPods. iPods, yep. And so they were intended to be downloaded onto your iPod, and it's a play on word from broadcasting to podcasting. But So there's a little history on where the phrase podcasting came from. But, yeah, it's been around for a long time. So um, I did podcasting back in the day, um, a bit of a miniature war gamer did flames of war okay. and then bolt action um but anyway that's my nerd side so um took an aptitude test was really keyed on you know broadcast sure. production so they sent me back to school learned how to become went to film school nice graduated from valdosta state a year ago well, it could be worse you could have went to communications and try to get a job in radio which is hurting hurting right now exactly so um this was it was spring break 2018, and I was asked, since I was the old guy, again, um, I was the old guy and wasn't at the beach when yeah. spring break kicked off, so they asked me if I would go film a World War II vet that was talking. Nice. So being hobby World War II history, that kind of stuff at the time, I was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So I went and I listened to the guy's story, and as he was sitting there telling it and going more and more, I was like, this is just more than the liberation of Dachau. Yeah. You know, when he mentioned the 442nd, because he only said the 442nd. He didn't say anything else. And I had talked to him afterwards, introduced myself, told him what I was doing for the school. And then... Um, he was like, I said, do you mind if I come over and we start talking more? Sure. And he was like, yeah, I'd love Time to. Time is of the essence. Time is of the yep. interviews vets, not only are they passing away, but they're, um, the ability to be lucid and to call up those memories and even be able to sit down for a long-form interview is getting harder and harder to find. You're right. It is. It really is. And so, so it's great at that age he was able to do so. And so you went over there a few times. And yep. And got close to 30 hours of interview footage with him wow. telling all the different stories that he did. And see, that's, like I'd said earlier, he'd done it in the 90s, mm -hmm. 90 times he told this story. So um, he went to Toastmasters and learned to become a better speaker. Sure. And he's just an amazing, amazing storyteller. Well, you tell a story 90 times. At that point, you're, you become like a well-rehearsed comedian and or public speaker. Exactly. I mean, at that point, you can it's all muscle memory. Yep. So he had the, the timing down, um, but amazing story. And um, I just thought about what it would be that... His main concern at the time was that he knew he was getting older. Of course, he was in his 90s. But he wanted to continue to make sure people knew about the Holocaust from somebody who had seen it firsthand. Yeah. So I told him, I said, we'll film this. We'll make it into something really nice, and we can give it to all of the schools that you have spoken mm -hmm. at. 
over these years. Everybody will have a copy of you telling the story. Well, then it just grew, and it grew, and the university, Valdosta State University had tremendous buy-in for backing me on it. Now we're firing off the 50 cows, the 30 cows, and all the light machine guns. And I really, really hope that the rest of my film crew is over there getting those if, shots. If they're worth their salt. <laughs> you know, I, I have a YouTube channel, and I always come out these events, and I have all these grand delusions of getting footage. But once you're out here, if you don't have a crew, it's so hard to be part of the event plus get footage. Yep. It's hard to get people to sit down for podcasts, um, especially, I always try to do it before the event because afterwards everybody's tired. They just, they're not you know and down for the cause and all that but um i greatly appreciate your time yeah let me ask you this i have heard that the cool thing about doing a documentary is you'll have a storyline and you'll have some information and you'll go talk to the subject at hand and they'll mention a name keeps coming up a name keeps coming up now obviously with world war ii it's a little harder because of the age yes but things start to fall in place uh, a name that keeps coming up they may still be around or one of their friends and did you find that your documentary started going down a path that you never intended it to because of the information that was presented to you and the contacts? Yes, definitely. We, um, it went from just being a sit down, a sit down story of him telling me what was going on to him starting to talk about stuff that needed, I don't want to say more explanation, but I just didn't want a narrator to say it. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I think for the, the viewer, it's always more interesting if you have, you know, either the voice of the person or someone voiceovering diaries instead of just having the same monotone narrator. Exactly. Because then you feel like you're just watching a history channel. Right. So um, I've gone out to Fort Leonard Wood and talked with um, the lead historian at the Engineer Museum. Uh, been out to the 45th ID Museum in Oklahoma City and talked to their curator who is has a tremendous amount of knowledge about Dachau and the Liberation Day and everything. A uh, very well-read historian, uh, Michael Gonzalez is his name. And then Troy Morgan at the um, Fort Leonard Wood Museum. Went down to Camp Chaffee and did B-roll footage of, because they still have all the barracks and everything set up there. They never tore anything down. <clears throat> How's that for foresight? It's so sad when you hear, like, I live down in Fort Myers, Florida, and you have the Fort Myers International Airport, then we have Page Field, which is for Cessnas and private planes. But all that was Air Force and Marine Corps training base during World War II. And obviously, they're more interested in the commercial sites, and none of that stuff really there anymore. anymore. So the cool thing is of my sister-in-law, her husband's family, they have a cattle ranch that we go out shooting on, and that was part of the gun range back then. And so we're constantly finding 50 cows that ran out of momentum. They never hit anything. They just ran out of momentum and fell to the ground. And so wow. we'll leave their buckets of just spent ordnance that just lost momentum and fell on the ground. And so it's it, obviously, you know, not every place can maintain history because they need the property for, for uh, modern-day use. But it's so great to hear there are places that had the foresight to hold on to something. Yeah. They have the... Um... That's where Elvis Presley went and got his haircut when he joined the military. There you go. Before he got sent off to Texas to sure. go through training, he went through Chaffee, and that's where he was inducted. Wow. So they've got um, they've got the barber shop where he got his haircut. <clears throat> that is uh, one of the big museum draws, and then they just kept that whole area all around there. All the World War II barracks are still 
up, and they're in the, they've got one of them is turned into a museum to show all the stuff. That's where um, Chaffee is where all of the P- Nazi POWs and German POWs from North Africa were sent. Okay. So the early Desert War, all of those guys were shipped back to uh, Camp Chaffee, and they stayed there. And actually, George has some funny stories of, you know, because they marched around in formation everywhere they went. Yeah. And, um, you know, George and his buddies went through basic training there. So, you know, they saw the Germans all the time. Yeah. But um, so we've been there. Um, we're doing this. I went out to Texas and um, Chad Bayer, he has a compressor truck. He's with the MVPA out of Camp Hausa in Gainesville, Texas, and he has a beautifully restored uh, compressor truck, CCKW frame, um, with, you know, the Leroy engine and the compressor with the hose reels. He's got all the tools, everything works. Him and his brother-in-law dress up, and they go, you know, they do the reenactments and stuff as well, but he was very gracious, and we spent an entire day out there just filming his equipment. And then ran into him again in Missouri when he was up there for Veterans Day. And got the ride in the parade on the truck, but just a beautifully restored compressor truck. Yeah, when you, when it comes to uh, producing and editing and all that, you cannot underestimate the value of B-roll. Yes. You can never have too much. Never. You can always have not enough. Yep. Um, I was listening to um, Adam Carolla, who done some... Um, movies as well as documentaries but he said whenever he would do movies he would always make sure to get a few over the shoulder shots of the of the key actor that way when they're into editing and they realize oh crap we forgot to shoot this line they just use the footage of the over the shoulder and they'll come back and have them voice over it in so then they at least have the line on film you may not see him saying it but that's kind of the way he would always kind of protect himself to get a few shots of over the shoulder and just in case something changed and needed to add something uh, you know when it goes through they have people to you know, doing their testing and, oh, well, I didn't understand who this person was. They can go and say, you know, that's my brother, you know, things yeah. like that. So <laughs> you can never have too much B-roll, even if it comes to something as simple as shooting a YouTube video. Yep, yep, you are absolutely right. And that's why I'm so excited about this today. Um, I've been following... Um, World War II the, the, Yeah, actually, um, the deuce and a half that's out of St. Pete, Plain Jane... Mm-hmm. Sean and um, his dad, that's their truck. Actually, it's not here today. He called me and said they weren't going to be able to bring it, but um, which is a shame. But then there's so much other stuff here and the reenactments. The plan for the documentary is to do, I want to do a lot of animation, but I want to have the footage of you guys running across the field in full well, kit. You can animate over top of it. Exactly. Because, unfortunately, down here in Florida, the trees aren't conducive to the European theater. But the nice thing about this event, because I did this one two years ago, is obviously here in Florida it's usually flat, but we have this hill. And if they do it the same way we did two years ago, the tanks are going to be up over the crest of the hill, so you won't see them, unlike other events where you see them in the corner of the parking lot. <laughs> and, obviously, they, they may have changed it up but two years ago. Basically, what we did is we'll send out a combat patrol we'll walk down do a combat patrol maybe send on a jeep we'll take fire we'll fall back calling the the you know calling the cavalry and then tanks will come over and blow the living hell out of everything and so this is a really great place for that and like i said you could always kind of do the the over animation stuff to use the silhouettes and the guys walking in the tanks but then get rid of all the um spanish pines yes yeah yeah 
So, yeah, I'm just super excited that this kind of stuff is still, uh, you guys do this stuff because, well, you and know, it's like George said, it's, there's just, they're all, they're all passing away. Yep. We're not going to have them for much longer, no. any of them. And then there's going to be a day where there isn't one of them to share the story. Yeah. And that's why we need to have these oral histories and these oral interviews with these veterans to share, to get their story out. Because every one of them is just so interesting and unique. And everybody's war story is, it needs to be heard. Yeah, and, you know, even if they never saw combat, um, one of my kind of regrets of doing this podcast, I feel like, I, sometimes I feel like I started five years too late, ten years too late. It's getting harder and harder. You know, and I'll interview anybody. I don't care if they saw combat or if they, you know, they're just in the service at the time. And that's what I'm starting to find is more and more the vets who are still with us. You know, they joined at the end of the war and they went over and did a lot more, you know, police work style stuff and but I like to interview the ladies who were here during the you know during the war to see what was going on on the home front and all that stuff and so one of the things we like to do here on this podcast is anybody who was around from that time early on it like the third interview I did actually interviewed a, a German gentleman unfortunately I did it in this beautiful big house marble floors columns but, oh. so the acoustics was horrible and I tried getting the background noise out but if you guys go back and listen to it he's, he was like six and he was talking about how he was, and him and his uncle and his mom and dad were up in the attic because the Allies and the Germans were literally fighting outside their front door. And to this day, he still broke down crying because he remembers a German just laying out in the front yard just for a day and a half. Just somebody help me. He got hit. He was just laying out there, but the German medics were afraid to go out there. They're afraid they're going to get shot. The you know everybody's kind of pinned down. No one can move. And he he's just talking about for like a day and a half to get somebody just help me. And wow. So even getting the standpoint from, you know, someone who was there at the age of five, even they still have. And it was kind of it was kind of cool because um, I asked him, I said, well, you know, obviously you're young, but, you you know, you're, you had older brothers and all that. And his actual older brother, his oldest brother went and fought for the Weimar Republic. But, yeah, he, he still remembers vaguely, like, how as, and he heard stories through his brother as well, as Hitler was starting to get more and more power. And the indoctrination at the schools started picking up. How parents would change their conversation around their kids. Wow! Because the kids yeah. were being trained to go to school and tell and tell the, the you know the authorities of any, any anti you know Nazi sympathizants. So the parents would start to change how they would have conversation with their neighbors in front of their kids because they couldn't trust their own children not to go to school and, and drop the dime on them. Wow. And so it's always great to, you know, find, I really like to talk to people and, and get the information that we haven't heard, you know, 200 times on every history show and all that. And so I always, I love just getting the personal side to everything. So, um, this is your first real production. Yes. Uh, funding. Are you doing crowdsourcing? If people want to help you out, is, it, is there any place they can go? Or if you um, want to get more information, you have a website, Facebook page, Instagram, all that good stuff? Actually, jbrownproductions.com okay. is uh, my website um, and there's links to my Facebook and to the Egan documentary there we're not at the point where we're doing crowdfunding yet I've been trying to so, I want to use that for post production yeah, that's to make sure color that correction, color correction and uh, animation is super expensive and not to mention scoring um, scoring exactly. is a huge, that will 
that makes or break of it. it yep. Even for you, you YouTubers out there, um, putting some cheesy music because you want to just the music is everything that's all i can say it's scoring right. will make or break a, make a or break movie. it it will it will and that's scoring color correction and animation those are the three places you cannot nickel and dime yep so i'm waiting to do it that way um i had a large donation through Beautiful. valdosta state from um a friend of george now the gentleman you were talking to in this this tent the one i stayed in last night they're yes. all from that area Oh, they are. Yeah, they're all Georgia boys. They um, they put on an event three weeks ago up in Lakeland, Georgia. Lakeland, Georgia, yeah. and they didn't advertise it. I was I could not well, find. I found out it happened after it happened. Well, I, I had Jeremy for last two years on the podcast, and basically what it was, and I'm not stepping on any toes. The first year, basically, the the thing started out the first year as a fundraiser for the school's jazz band, uh-huh. and um, the city got in behind it. And the turnout was horrible because they didn't advertise. And so this year we moved it to the Boy Scout camp. And the Chamber of Commerce would say, okay, we're going to advertise, we're going to advertise. They had a local radio station come do a live uh, live remote that day. Uh-huh. But that doesn't help. Nope. And so if you're not on Facebook and you're not a reenactor or a member of Living History Groups, you didn't know about it. Yep. And for somebody to be from the Valdosta area and not know about it until it's after, I mean, that's just... I saw it in the Valdosta Valdosta Daily Times is where I saw it, and I was, and I talked with um, Levi, my, one of the other producers on the film, and we were like, man, right in the back door, we could have got it. And then I, because, you know, I'd like to get names of guys, because if we need to do reshoots or I need to do, you know, I want to do a combat patrol. Talk to those guys there. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um... We were at Camp Patton, the Boy Scout camp, mm-hmm. and they have acreage out there, and we had the run of the place. We did a eight-mile, four-hour tactical event just oh, wow. in the woods, Nope. and then we did a 45-minute public event. But what, the, what I'm getting at is they have gear. Yep. They have access to that camp, and so if you guys need to do bee footage, there is plenty of woods out there, and it would be a great place to, you know, you get half with your post-production, and you realize we need a, you know, a combat patrol scene. Those guys can hook you up. Yep. Because that was one of one of George's best stories was um, <clears throat> when they found the Germ- they found German jets. They found two of them. Wow. They left them behind because they didn't have any fuel. Huh. But he was talking about how. I hope they sabotaged them first. The, well, actually, they were still with the T Force guys. Oh, okay. So the scientists were there yeah. with them. Uh, the they were doing exactly what they did. He said. Um, they were doing a patrol. They were going up. They found a big clearing, and of course, <laughs> let's skirt the trees around it. And as they walked up a little hill, a little rise, at the top, he said there was a barn, and there were two airplanes, but they didn't have any propellers. Sure. And they'd never seen an airplane without propellers yeah. before, and they did not under. They were like, "What is that?" And then you know all the radio chatter back because the. You know, the scientist that was embedded with them was like, oh, my gosh, you know, let's mm-hmm. let's let's get that. So, uh, you know, that's a two six two. We've got to we've got to do something with that. And uh, so he said they just pressed on. You know, the scientists came, took it over. They called in another just standard infantry unit to protect them and yeah. hold down the fort. And then George's unit moved on. And he said two two days later. They were they were marching down the marching down the Audubon, 
and there goes those jets flying over top of them but they had american stars on them nice at that time so yeah i interviewed a, a gentleman a b-17 pilot oh nice and um due to engine failure they had to bail out luckily they were still over england and so they they land. I said, well, how, how did you get back to base? Well, we went to the nearest town. Turns out there's a um, RAF pilot there. And after after his breakfast, of course, he took us to the local um, airport. And they actually had one there that they had gotten hold of. And he said it was the first time he'd ever heard a rocket engine was that thing, when that thing was taking off. Yeah. But, uh, That's awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for I having me. I appreciate you uh, sitting down and getting to work. And furthermore, I appreciate what you're doing with uh, putting together a documentary and telling another story that hasn't been told before. Thank you. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And right now, I mean, we're kind of talking about the cost of doing these sort of things. The good news is for you that um, the cost of quality digital cameras have come down tremendously over the last 20 years. Yes. You know, you're doing this in the late 90s on, you know, 35 millimeter. You want, then you got to put in development costs and all <laughs> that. So at least uh, that side of it's a little more affordable. Not yes. Not say cheap, but definitely more affordable than it would have been 25 years ago. Yes. Mr. Brown, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Not a problem. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>